I will say, as a queer person, sometimes the most subversive thing it wears the most ordinary clothing. Sometimes the most powerful, subversive act comes in the, under the cloak of something normative. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is psychotherapist and psychedelic researcher Alex Belzer. Alex has been a study therapist since 2018 for a MAPS Phase 3 clinical trial, which studies the efficacy of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treatment of severe PTSD. He is also the founding member and administrative director of a psilocybin cancer anxiety trial at NYU School of Medicine, where he's investigated if psychedelic mushrooms can ease anxiety for folks facing end of life. In his psychotherapeutic practice, he focuses in part on preventing suicide amongst young gay and bisexual men. We spoke in depth about queer spirituality, queer wisdom, and the subversive potential of psychedelics. I'm a queer man, I, I'm a cisgender queer man, but I, I was taught in this, and I've studied in this queer feminist criticalist critique. You know, female mysticism historically is strongly associated with voices and visionary experiences, with pain and suffering, with ecstasies and creative expression, with spiritual longing and devotion, with experiences of love and friendship and compassion. And any experiences that we talk about that deny these like profound experiences, um, I think do us a profound disservice. And I think recapitulate patriarchal and, and misogynist tropes. It's weird that in psychedelic science, we haven't really pulled in attachment theory, that we haven't really looked at the ideas of interpersonal connectedness, that we don't deal with the body at all. This like queer idea of reclaiming the body as a site of consciousness and as a, as a political node in the world. The body is so profoundly important in the clinical space, in the psychedelic space, but we pretend as though the body isn't there sometimes, or at least I've seen that. And so I, I want us to ask the question about what are the varieties of the psychedelic experience and how do we understand how people get, get better? You know, in your talk at Chakruna, you mentioned queer spirituality is about power. Well, one of the problems with science is that it pretends that it operates in some, I mean, the, the, the purveyors of, of the scientific positivist model pretend that science operates in a uh, apolitical realm. That if we're going to have evidence-based practice, this is the, the code word, the watchword that every graduate student in my doctoral program, all of my psychiatry residents follow, it has to be EPP, evidence-based practice, evidence-based treatments. And anything that's not evidence-based, there's no evidence for it and it completely denies long lineages of wisdom and wisdom carriers, as though they weren't based on our experience of evidence before. And they completely deny the power inherent in what uh, the means of production of knowledge. It is expensive to generate knowledge. It costs about 20 grand per patient in these psychedelic clinical trials to run one subject through the trial, $20,000, because you're running it in a hospital, you're dealing with schedule one drugs, you have to pay for all the overhead, you have to pay for all the, it's very expensive. And so these trials cost millions of dollars. In the United States, when we look at the evidence-based treatments for psychiatry, the average cost in the United States to get a drug through FDA clearance for one indication, mm -hmm. the average cost is $2 billion. And so if it costs $2 billion to bring one drug to market for one indication, who's paying for that? Now, it, it, there's a, an entire system that needs to be recognized in the generation and the production of what constitutes knowledge. And it is expensive. So disciplines like 
massage, something that I know that you're passionate about and work with, something like acupuncture, and in, including all sorts of different psychotherapies. Like I'm a psychologist, right? I work with psychotherapy, but there's no money in studying IFS. There's no money in studying yoga treatments in combination with talk therapy. And so there's no evidence. And so they're not evidence-based and then therefore are, are, are of no use to us. And the queer, the queer lineage is really I think they really get that. I mean, I'm getting that because queer folks during the plague years of the 80s and 90s, like an entire, nearly an entire generation was lost to HIV AIDS. And the queer folks realized that the generation of knowledge and power and medication was about addressing structural oppression through the regulatory channel, through the wholesale silencing of the Reagan administration around hundreds of thousands of people with a, with a terminal illness at the time. And queer people realized that there was power in their coming together to, to like literally sit down with um, drugs that they were taking, collect their own data, and then use that power and speak it to people in place, positions of authority to be used for better purposes. I, that radical model, which I, I don't believe should be radical, but is seen as radical, is inspired by feminist thinkers. It's inspired by other oppressed groups. It's inspired by Andre Lord, who says that the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. And psychedelic medicines are a little bit like that. You know, there's this claim that they're inherently subversive. I don't know that that's so. I think we can have a discussion about power and uh, with that because we see them being used for non-subversive means. You know, queer spirituality, at least as I know it in my radical queer traditions, is in love with the technologies of the body, is in love with our inherent desire and sexuality, is in love with the ecology of the land and the ecology of our relational systems that we find ourselves in, in our families, not just of origin, but that we choose, is enamored of understanding, and for good reason, what it means to be rejected from society. And so this, this trope of coming out of the psychedelic closet, maybe you've heard that. And I've had a lot of straight folks come up to me, talk to me about, can we use this metaphor of coming out of the closet? Now, I, I grew up as like a closeted gay boy in Indiana in the 90s. In my high school, there were 3,000 people, not a single person was out, not one. And I have to tell, like, a lot of straight folks don't realize that, like, it's very common for me and my friends to have bottles thrown at us when we walk down the street hand in hand with a same-sex partner. This happened to me multiple times, to have people hurl slurs at us, to feel like we have to censor ourselves in professional and academic and occupational spaces, and to even censor ourselves in ayahuasca circles, uh, even when we walk into the clinic, into the hospital, into the ketamine clinic, and they don't ask us what our pronouns are. They don't ask us what our preferred names are. They, don't, uh, they use gendered language and saying, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend when the person may not have a cisgender partner in the first place or may not be cisgender themselves. There's power in the psychedelic discourse, the, the discourse around decriminalization, of legalization, of medicalization, of who gets to hold the power, who gets to administer these drugs, who owns the clinics, right? Whether it's a venture capital-backed large multi-state multi firm that has the money to do so, or is it your, your ma-pop sort of shop running a small practice somewhere? And I think that we have something to learn from queer folks because they have the experience of coming out of those closets. They know what it means. You don't just step out of it once. You have to step out of the closet across your entire life. And with psychedelics, 
you know, I, I did my dissertation in a place where I, people knew that I was even publishing on psychedelics, but I, I couldn't really talk about it in my, in my faculty. I, I would share with other people judiciously that I was studying psychedelic medicine. They thought even five years ago that I was nuts. How are you going to get an Ivy League tenure track faculty position or whatever the equivalent might be in your in your world, when you're when you're studying like like ayahuasca brews and psychedelic mushrooms, they they think that you're nuts. I, I, luckily, I had the experience of knowing what it was like to, to to sort of code switch and walk between those spaces and 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 use language judiciously to recognize the implicit powers that be. And frankly, as a as a white cisgender man who looks the way that I do and has the level of formal education I have, I have all of this privilege that I, I struggle with how to use that privilege in, in better ways, in good ways. And it's no mistake that the, that the psychedelic world is dominated largely by white, cisgender, straight men in the position of primary investigators, in the position of heads of companies, in the positions of primary authors. The, the vast majority of that formal work is dominated by individuals who have those intersecting levels of power. And that shapes how we understand the experience that shapes how we study the practice. Our methods reflect our diversity in good and bad ways. And I encourage and challenge us to really like look at that in a, in a deep and systemic way. I kind of want to dig into this idea of whether psychedelics are by their very nature subversive or not. And in doing so, can you talk to me a little bit about what got you into this field of, of psychedelics? I, I was listening to an interview that, uh, he did with Eric Davis a while ago, and he was talking about seeing you probably in 2001, 2002. I mean, you've been uh, around the psychedelic world for close to two decades now. What was it that, that brought you into this world? And in, in any sense, can there be, can you tie it to a queer sensibility? I mean, I, my first um, psychedelic experience was meeting a friend in my freshman year dorm in like the late 90s and he gave me Stan Groff's psychedelic psychotherapy from from the 70s uh, which was just this beautiful work that I encourage people to go back to and then I brought my copy of PCAL to be signed by um, Sasha Shulgin and Ann Shulgin at the Berkeley House in I think 2000 2001 at a mind states conference back then there were there were no there were psychedelic conferences, but there was, there was no peer review literature to talk about. No one was publishing really anything. I mean, Rick Strassman was doing some DMT work, but, but basically there was nothing to be published. And not until around 2006 when Hopkins came out with one of their first papers with psilocybin. It was a very different scene, right? You know, um, there, was, there, were, there were no ties and uh, it was a much more marginal, subversive cultural space. And why did it, why did it appeal to you? I never trusted the reality that I grew up being handed and explained to me. Is that, is that all there is? That's kind of what I was asking. It's like, I, I was the kind of boy who wanted to believe that magic was real. I was the kind of boy who would spin around on the playground until I, you know, fall down dizzy because I could induce an altered state of consciousness just by getting vertigo for a few minutes, uh, rolling down hills. I felt like expanded or non-ordinary consciousness was in my phenomenal birthright at some point for some reason. And when I learned about psychedelic drugs like LSD or psilocybin and these other medicines, I thought, why, why aren't we talking about this? This is potentially the most amazing and revolutionary thing to happen. Mm -hmm. And then I started to educate myself on the history of, 
of that. You know, the two, the two processes dovetail because I was also profoundly closeted as a, as a, as a young gay boy. I didn't, I was in love with my best friend in elementary school, but I was in the closet. But this, this idea of the closet is it's a, it's, constructed plank by plank over thousands of messages in the minds of not just queer folks, queer kids, but straight people. And it's constructed from the outside in. Queer kids aren't born into closets. We put them there plank by plank. They hear it from their families, their communities, their teachers, their media messages. And so coming out of the closet is about this word, liberation. And before the queer equality movement, there was the queer liberation movement, which is really about understanding how we liberate ourselves in many ways. The move towards marriage equality and the discourses of equality is really a different movement than the original queer movement. And it, it links up with the queer psychedelic movement, the ideas of liberation, of coming out of the anti-war peace culture with Vietnam, for example. When you go back into those times, when you look at the psychedelic leaders from those times, I have profound both admiration, but also frustration with them. Tim Leary, the Pied Piper, we can say what we want about Tim's politics, but you know, Leary, who, who, who did so much in some ways for the movement, also said that was, was profoundly homophobic in his remarks. He, he said that LSD was a specific cure for homosexuality. He's, you know, Ram Das, Richard Alpert published case reports of conversion therapy, which is outlawed today, where he took queer people, gay people, and tried to convert them into straight people and reported on the, the beneficial findings. This is before Ram Das, he himself admitted his own attraction to men and what we might think of as bisexuality. Other grandparents in the field, like Masters in Houston, who did all this work, said that mescaline led towards heterosexualization. And they found that you know, this sort of plant medicine work tended to turn their queer, well, they would use gay uh, uh, clients straight. The Hollywood Hospital, probably the most famous hospital treating people, very famously treated uh, over a dozen people who were considered transvestites and transsexualists at the time, including gay men, um, trying to make them straight. This is the same place that treated Cary Grant quite famously. We have a whole history across the pond in the UK of uh, a hospital over a dozen uh, treating over a dozen lesbian queer women trying to turn them into to good straight ladies and so it's repulsive to me it's violence i, I didn't know anything about this for, for for 16 years i was in the psychedelic community and i like i really in the queer world no one talked about this history these are the rainbow skeletons of our closet they are propagated today in this male-female dyad, this idea that you have to have a, a cisgender man and a cisgender woman, the, the mommy and daddy in the room with yeah, the talk, client. Can you explain that a little bit? I'm, I don't think everybody knows the way that this model has been set up within clinical trials. So for anyone who may have had their own experience with psychedelics, um, it can be profoundly challenging. And so in the clinic space, the, the guidance that we've received largely from underground practices and informed by various indigenous practices is to work with two people in the room, two therapists in the room. You know, there's a debate about whether they both have to be licensed, but you're working with two people. And traditionally, at least in the last few decades, that has meant a, a man and a woman. I think that some of this comes out of even the psychoanalytic literature, that this idea that you'd have transferences towards the man that would be the fatherly and transferences towards the woman that would be motherly. I think it also comes out of a sort of transpersonal archetypal 
understanding of like energy, the idea of like, like divine feminine or masculine energy, the client taking the psychedelic would be have access to um, the sort of solar lunar energy that comes with those different archetypes, right? So the man holds the sort of discipline, power, yang practices, and the yin, motherly, womanly, divine feminine, lunar, cyclical practices are held by the woman. This entire premise of gender does a grave disservice to queer folks and to straight folks alike, because it essentializes stereotypes of gender and propagates them in sort of new agey ways that are so unhelpful. I believe that people, regardless of gender, can manifest these traditional archetypal practices. So, you know, I'm a cisgender man with a beard. Uh, My pronouns are he, him. I also go by they, them. But I, I believe when I work with the people that I get to work with, that I can generate traditional um, divine, I'm using air quotes here, divine feminine experiences. I can hold space in a tender, caring, compassionate, well-attuned, soothing way. I can have the wide lap, again, quotes of, of a mother with somebody who needs it if they're weeping or scared or crying or feel small and in danger. And I believe that my cisgender women colleagues can do something similar. And I believe that trans and non-binary people can do all, all manner of things and hold all manner of spaces in the community, the psychedelic research community, in large part because of some people speaking up about this, um, MAPS has recently gone to, toward a model that doesn't require a quote-unquote male and a female therapist to be in the room in their uh, MDMA trials. Uh, at NYU, we never use this, in part because of the leadership of people like Jeff Gus, who's a, a queer psychoanalyst and our director of psychedelic psychotherapy. We had different gender dyads in the room with people, and we, we have no anecdotal reason to believe that the outcomes are any better or worse, or they may even be better. Now, there are specific histories. The primary objection is that what about somebody who has a history of sexual assault? How can we possibly put a woman with a history of sexual assault in the room with a psychedelic medicine with two cisgender male clients? And I understand those objections. I think that we need to move and agree with them. We need to move directly if they've been assaulted by a man, for example, but we need to move directly towards client-specific ways of understanding their therapist pairings. So, um, you know, if somebody has a complex history with an abusive person of a particular gender, consider that when making the therapist pairings. Ask the client what their, what their gender preferences are, are and think about how to do that in, in a better way. So that's just one example of this, but, but it's endemic to the, the psychedelic space where we, we don't ask about people's pronouns upon entry. We may not ask about people's relational history in a way that like allows them to feel comfortable, especially if they're queer. Mm. And so they might feel they have to closet themselves off in the room um, in some way. And, and I've worked with people who've taken MDMA and, and they have, they access different parts of their own gender, people who change their pronouns after treatment with MDMA. This is not unknown. This is like a known thing that happens. And we have to ask the question, what's that about? Right. right. Uh, I, I talk about some yeah. of the people in the studies you've been part of going in as cisgender, heteronormative, and then after having done the psychedelics, sexual orientation and gender identities can change. Talk to me a little bit about this. 
One way of understanding it is that we, we've been talking in the Black Lives Matter 2020 moment around internalized racism and internalized white supremacy and how we propagate that. It, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of sisterly lineage here around internalized homophobia which, uh, and internalized transphobia and it, the self-hatred, shame and stigma that queer people and straight people carry around that oftentimes, which is completely un, uh, non-conscious, right? It's something that we may not even be aware of. And so I, I work from the premise that most people that I come into contact, not just clients that I work with, but colleagues, people that I meet on the public bus system, carry some form of internalized homophobia. Then if they get a, take a psychedelic journey and we, let's take the premise that psychedelics are boundary dissolving, they're egolytic in some way, they um, they take the, the ego protects us from that unconscious material, which is scary or dangerous. And then suddenly you're sort of shown it. And, and so if, if, if a whole host of people are carrying internalized homophobia, and then suddenly they have a series of psychedelic journeys, they may come into contact with parts of themselves that were previously off limits, compartmentalized and, and sort of ferreted away, including same-sex same attraction, or including a different experience of their own gender, which doesn't comport with the sex that they were assigned to them at birth. Not everybody's a, a complete zero or a complete six on the Kinsey scale of, of sexual attraction. And I, I find this happens not just with people who have a wholesale shift in their experience of their gender or sexual identity through psychedelics, but with straight folks, I, I, so many of the straight cisgender men that I'm friends with have, have in confidence shared with me that, you know, if not for psychedelics, they might not have realized that they had some affection, erotic attraction, um, some sort of connection with, with men in their lives, even if their primary partner is a cisgender woman. And I, and I think that it can be radically changing in part. I think that anyone who does psychedelic facilitation work needs to be to educate themselves deeply about this sort of work uh, in order to be ready for it. Because it's strange to me that I get all of this information as an out queer person all the time. And my straight counterparts in the psychedelic community have never heard about this kind of stuff. Why do I get all of this information from people about these experiences? I suspect that there are closeted patients that are seeing them that don't feel comfortable talking about the fact that they prefer they, them gender pronouns, and they've been referring to them as she, her for months now. This happens all the time. It is a form of structural oppression and violence, and it must be rooted out uh, at, the, at the very deepest places. Mm -hmm. So you asked this question uh, in your talk at Chakruna, why are we so afraid of sexuality in regards to, to psychedelics? And I was wondering if you might dig into that a bit for me, from a historical perspective, why has sexuality been off the table in psychedelics and psychedelic studies? And, and what are we missing when we ignore this whole realm of sexuality? You know, I, I really don't, don't actually know the answer to that question, but I think it's a question I want us to be on our lips. Um, what, about, what about sex? What about sex and sexuality, right? Um, part of the sort of like scientific discourse is it's so buttoned up you know, when, when MAPS starts um, re requiring at Psychedelic Science that people wear ties at the conference, it's, it's, it, it's to cover up in some ways our bodies and our sexuality, um, which I think, you, you know, has always been a sign of sight of power for queer people, for women, it's potentially dangerous power, potentially threatening power. Now, 
you know, there has been a robust discourse about, but, but one that needs to much more discussion about the history of sexual abuse in psychedelic community circles, both in like, both in the clinic room and outside of it. That being said, not all forms of sexuality are abusive. Um, not all experiences of one's own sexuality and erotic imagination are um, violent. In fact, I think that we, we should uh, reclaim those as ours. They are our own bodies, our own sex organs, our own orgasms. They are potentially a technology of ecstasy, as Mircea Eliade put it. They are potentially a powerful kundalini opening of energy that we should be not afraid of. Because when we're afraid of them, when we button them away, when we have a Protestant sort of fear-based understanding of our sexual education, they come out sideways in profoundly sometimes damaging ways. I, I think that when we pretend that sex and sexuality and erotic transferences and countertransferences aren't happening in group, aren't happening in the clinic, aren't happening in our clients' imaginations and in our own imaginations, when we repress or suppress those in, in various ways, we create a problem. We create a, a, a pathway for those energies to enact themselves in not good ways, in unfacilitated ways, in um, secretive ways. And so I'm tired of living in secret. You talk about the psychedelic world becoming richer by accessing queer wisdom. I want you to talk to me a little bit about what, what queer wisdom is with respect to the unique experiences that queer folks have access to. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I'm gonna just um, acknowledge my ignorance here, which is that I'm not a, a lifetime student of queer spirituality, even though I consider myself a spiritual queer person. I'm a psychologist. And one of the challenges with psychedelics is that they're so multidisciplinary, it's hard to be an expert in any one area. Queer spirituality is about, you know, as, as the founder of the Radical Fairy said, moving from subject-object consciousness to subject-subject consciousness. This is a cornerstone principle in the Radical very community that we we recognize our own subjectivity and the subjectivity of people that we come into contact with and do not objectify them as best we can as in this aspirational principle and it's dang hard if, if you've ever really tried to do it queer spirituality is about not just liberation of the self but in, in a way deep liberation of the oppressor as well queer spirituality is about play and playfulness, that it's subversive, that it involves dance and singing and flowers in the meadow. It involves like uh, the sort of clowning um, ribaldry uh, silliness that can happen in which truths can be told that cannot be told in other ways. Queer spirituality is about uh, an, an honoring of the body by being of the body and realizing that the ego is not just something that you carry around, be, you know, between the, the, the two eyes in the, in the head, that, that, that the, the, the psyche, the seat of consciousness is actually in the full physical realm. And even as Ken Wilber says, in the sort of centaur realm, that we exist uh, spiritually in a way where these boundaries of self can open up. It's about waking up as the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, a, a Zen teacher says, my liberation is bound up with your liberation. And these are not solo projects. If we want to wake up, we have to wake up together. I, I, and I think that psychedelic experiences are queer experiences in the original sense of the word, which is they're just weird. 
and weird in a way that's it's not that they're marginal or strange per se, but weird in that they're multifold. And as soon as you think that you have a handle on what the psychedelic topography looks like, suddenly an entirely new vector of experience can open up to you on your next trip. The, the last thing I'll say about queer spirituality and what the psychedelic movement may have to learn from it is that queer people are a convergence inherently. When I get together like a couple dozen queer folks in, in my Brooklyn apartment after the last election and we came together and you look around the room, it's a convergence because those people didn't grow up in the same homes or communities. If they were 24 people, they came from 24 different walks, different religious walks, different wisdom paths, different languages, different racial, socioeconomic, abled spaces. They come from a, a multiplicity of places and they converge together. So you have, uh, like many tributaries coming into a stream, queer spaces create convergence spaces where people are drawn together because of their gender and sexual identity experiences, but in doing so teach each other and learn from each other in this like smorgasbord of ways. And sometimes not very well, right? We don't have necessarily deepest tr wisdom tradition paths, but we have many, many paths. And so the shortest distance between two, any two wisdom paths oftentimes goes through queer spaces because those people are in the room. They studied that. They teach that. They know that. They can help introduce you and make that happen. In a similar way, psychedelic spaces are like that. You have these people, for whatever reason, feel a call towards psychedelic medicine to study it, to work with it, to facilitate, to, to call to some plant medicine or wisdom path tradition. And I'm not sure what is the common attribute across them, but they also come a convergence from various different wisdom traditions. And so the psychedelic spiritual tradition pulls from various wisdom traditions from the six inhabited continents of the human races and planet. And I think there's something to be learned there. Um, there's, a, there's, there's interesting crossovers across the way. And finally, you know, in, this, in, the, in, the, in the queer spiritual tradition, at least in like some of the radical fairy spaces, the like psychedelic medicine is on the altar explicitly. You know, it's not just in the province of indigenous traditions like the Native American church. These um, um, protected hidden uh, rituals are guided in queer spiritual spaces by psychedelic plant medicine wisdom in many um, direct, like very clear ways. Um, and so it's, it's not a marginal practice. It's like right there at the center of the work. Now looking into the future, into our crystal ball, are you at all worried about psychedelics becoming more normative as it becomes absorbed into this like everyday paradigm of, of capitalism? I guess my question is, is there a chance that the queering aspects that seem somewhat inherent to psychedelics become dulled by, say, uh, inclusion within the pharmaceutical industry? I, I mean, I'll start. I think it's inevitable, hmm. but I don't know that it'll be simple. So, and by the way, I wish I had a great crystal ball. I, I actually kind of, <laughs> it'd be nice to have, to have one to do some, to do some looking into. Um, but Let's assume for a minute that the future of psychiatry is actually um, psychedelic medicine. You know, most of the medicine classes of psychiatry have been, um, are being abandoned. SSRIs never really outperform placebo for most people. SNRIs also mostly a dead end and no real major movements. Benzodiazepines, highly addictive. Opiates, highly addictive. You know, you have anticonvulsants and some ADHD medications, which are problematic and, and don't really help many people. 
um, at least people, there's a lot of conflicting evidence about their efficacy in systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And so the psychiatric pharmaceutical industry is looking for like, what's the future of medicine? I think as you see with the multi-billion dollar markets with psychedelics, the future of medicine may be with with psychedelic medicine because we have these huge high magnitude effect sizes across multiple conditions and the future is yet to be written. But I think that um, you may see psychedelics move as you were putting it, like from the margins into the mainstream. It's telling when, when ketamine, right, a psychedelic medicine, a variant of it is patented and then uh, used by Johnson and Johnson as a treatment for depression. Your, your mom and dad's like 1950s pharmaceutical company uh, brings a psychedelic medicine to market. Like that's, that's really telling. I, I will say as a queer person, sometimes the most subversive thing to do, it wears the most ordinary clothing, you know, sometimes the most uh, powerful subversive act uh, comes in the, under the cloak of something normative. So, you know, if you have, I'm, I'm, I'm here sort of joking, soccer moms who've never used psychedelics before and they go into a clinic and they, it's, it's pretty square in the sense that there's some plants, but it's not, it's not really like, they're not at Esalen, for example, right? It's like a sort of um, more commodified, their health insurance may even pay for it. They're paying for a, a proprietary psychedelic medicine. They see a doctor, it's highly medicalized. It looks a lot like the kind of medical treatment they got before. But, but you know, like sometimes, sometimes that, that's where the magic might happen, right? It may not actually happen at the margins. I believe that, that that consciousness operates in like strange and fascinating ways, and the the multifold paths of healing can happen for people, even in the most banal and square of places. Oh yeah. So I I don't know how psychedelics, how the psychedelic the medical industry may be transformed by psychedelics, or how our sort of like late liquid capitalist nuclear family models may be transformed by psychedelics, uh, whether they'll be co-opted or whether they themselves will defy that sort of co-optation. I think probably a lot of things will happen. It will not be one way. I think probably many different things will simultaneously be happening for different people in different spaces. And we can cultivate those spaces together. And what do you think, I mean, asking you to peer into this non-existent crystal ball once more, because you're, you know, you're ensconced within this world and you've been there in 2006, you were part of starting this this clinical trial around people using psychedelic mushrooms in order to combat anxiety for facing end of life situations. We've seen PTSD come to the forefront as something being treated. Depression obviously is being studied. What else do you think we might see taken on clinically five to 10 years in the future? I want to say that I don't think psychedelics are a cure-all. And in fact, when you look at different models of healing from various indigenous teachers, they're oftentimes taken by the medicine person in order to see more clearly what's what is ailing the patient they're not taken by the patients right so i don't think they're a panacea that being said we see uh, psychedelic medicines of various stripes being uh, potentially pursued in clinical and preclinical trials for bipolar disorder one and two for adhd for eating disorders uh, like anorexia and bulimia. I'm working on a trial of obsessive compulsive disorder as a co-investigator at Yale, which is very promising. OCD is a 
notoriously difficult condition to treat for many people. Uh, it can be ameliorated, the symptom severity, but oftentimes people struggle with it for much of their lives. And, and psilocybin combined with some really good psychotherapy seems to really really help. You know, I, I think that they'll, you know, there may be some physical issues, like not just cluster headaches uh, or, you know, um, obesity. Um, psychedelics may have global anti-inflammatory properties. So you may see it being used for a variety of anti-inflammation things from bronchial dilators to eye drops for like eye itching and things like that. It's interesting. I mean, I think you'll see it largely for addiction issues across addictive drug classes. So you know, in the United States, the we're still in the midst of a, an opioid epidemic with fentanyl and carfentanil and, you know, pharma medications like OxyContin killing more people per year last year than died at the height of the AIDS epidemic from, from opioid overdoses. These are really dangerous, bad drugs. And psychedelics may be helpful for not just opioid abuse, uh, but also for alcohol use disorder, where there's a trial coming out. Our team at NYU, led by Dr. Michael Bogenschutz, that I think will be uh, very promising results coming out around treatment for alcoholism. Hopkins has some fantastic work with people trying to quit smoking. Smoking cessation work is just really strong. And so I think you may see a, a, a movement of psychedelics in the, in the addiction space, which is really the coming from uh, Bill W.'s Belladonna Cure, who's the founder of AA, you know, the 12-step movement, himself being cured, having a conversion experience by his own writing and, and claim from a, a psychedelic treatment at the time and trying to get psychedelic medicine into the bylaws of AA, but having that not come to pass. And so you see a pretty robust discourse in the 12-step uh, communities around addiction and psychedelics and whether or not um, the two can be reconciled. One thing that's really interesting about what you say is that so many of these kind of cures run counter towards the forces of capitalism. When I think about what you're saying about smoking cessation, well, tobacco industry couldn't be happy about this or about opiate addiction. That too is uh, kind of a huge moneymaker within the pharmaceutical industry. So again, this sort of subversive element so native to psychedelics seems to not fit that well into the, the modern money-making kind of order of, of things today. Is, it, is, it any, is this a question that, that you <laughs> have considered? You know, I, I would direct people towards an amazing book from David Courtright coming out of Harvard University Press. It came out a long time ago, but Courtright talks about how certain drugs are associated with certain types of economic production. He's, he specifically talks about the big three and the little three. The big three are alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, which are associated, this is my rough memory of it, but are associated with sort of colonizing colonial pre-capital, proto-capitalist and capitalist drugs. The, you know, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine are, are associated with this form of economic production. And then the little three in sort of these models are opium, cannabis, and coca. If we are moved towards a medicine model in late liquid capital, like global north economic productions that involves more psychedelics. Uh, I think that you may find that that type of conscious healing is associated with different types of economic models that um, that are already um, obviously being you know discussed and practiced. And I, 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 I in my experience, I mean anecdotally, I, I, I find that many people who are on psychedelic medicine path doing that kind of work, find that their taste for alcohol and 
uh, caffeine starts to change, for example. Not, not always, but there seems to be something about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that book with a little bit of internet research, and that, I think that book is David Courtright, Forces of Habit. Um, and it sounds like a, a good one. I'll definitely check that out myself. So Alex, kind of in a, a, an attempt to bring this conversation to a close, I wanted to ask you, what's one thing you've learned by being exposed to this world of psychedelics for this long? I mean, have they encouraged growth in any surprising direction for you? What, what continues to be a joy uh, and a path of discovery vis-a-vis psychedelics? I feel like I'm getting younger. <laughs> I do. I, I mean, I just want to say that I, I, uh, as someone who trained as a, as a psychotherapist and I get to teach psychotherapy to others, I, I think it's a profound transformative practice to, to, to sit with somebody for you know, 50 minutes every week and to, to do the work. That being said, I'm also frustrated with it by the slowness of it. I, I've worked with people and I've talked to people who work with people for years. And I, I find that I am transformed through that practice and that my, my clients are transformed through that practice. With psychedelics, they, they seem to be catalyzers of different processes that if and when well held are really powerful. And they change not only as agents of transformation, the, this, the sort of symptom reduction experience of the client, but they change the practitioner in, in interesting and weird ways. Um, I think I've gotten into yoga and like bioenergetic forms of physical practice in a serious way as a teacher, um, in part because of psychedelics, in part because psychedelics are so explosive at times, like radically shifting. They, they've almost encouraged me to, to adopt daily practices, uh, stillness practices, meditative practices, um, to turn on the Axis Mundi every morning and sit down and just like be with myself for a little bit, um, which I didn't know how to do. And then finally, I'll just say, I, I, I get to be passionate about this in part because it, it feels so alive. You know, we can have an intellectual conversation, but it feels embodied. Like I, I can't really talk about psychedelics in a way that does, like my heart and my gut and the, the blood pumping through my veins isn't in some way a part of it. And so it's not really heady. It's, it, feels, it feels like it's moving and I, I love it. You know, I feel really incredibly humbled and grateful to be a part of this. And it's hard to know how to do it well but I, I'm trying and it's humbling because there's so many teachers around with it, you know, and there's so much, there's so much to learn. So I, I, I mean, I love that you're talking about psychedelics and human potential in this lineage of Esalen that has been carried through some very dark times, through times that of prohibition and oppression of various sorts. I, I feel very appreciative of the flame keepers that have kept that those lineages uh, intact in some important way. Yeah. I just really want to thank you for your perspective. I, I don't hear it from every corner of the, the psychedelic uh, world. And so just really appreciate it. really appreciate you kind of being a truth teller, someone who's, who's making the discussion more full, more profound and, and, and more real within the, the psychedelic space. And want to a- ask you to end this interview today. Tell me something beautiful about you. <laughs> You're going to make me blush. Uh, <laughs> wow. You know, I, I, um, I guess what I'm in touch with right now is I, um, I feel tender about talking about these things with other people. And I feel um, 
like I think we all want to be seen in some way, not seen as something, but just seen for who we are. And I, I feel most beautiful when I feel like I can speak in a way that feels unencumbered, uncloseted, um, that feels like it's coming from um, my own power, which is connected to your power, which is like um, uh, met with you know equanimity and strength, you know, coming into coming into being. And I feel like when I get to be like that, I get to see see more of that in the people that are around me. And um, and uh, I, I, that vulnerability is uh, something that I didn't know how to do before and i've i've been learning even in even in the last few seasons and we'll we'll see where it goes thank you for thank you for having me and letting me you know practice talking about these things in better ways i i, I take that i take that very seriously mm. so thank you thank you alex thank you for listening to voices of Esalen. today's show is produced in conjunction with terry gilby michelle mccrary and michelle broderick our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution. <laughs>